Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What's happening? How are you? What's going on? How did you make it? Did you get what you wanted? Did you break it? Did you return it? Were you disappointed with the person that loves you? Were you excited by them? I want to congratulate everybody who got Mark Marin merchandise. Uh, wear it well. Enjoy it. Enjoy that t-shirt, that hat, that mug, that poster. Dig it. Today I'm talking to uh, Patty Jenkins. Uh, she's the director of Wonder Woman 1984. She was the first woman to ever direct a superhero franchise movie uh, when she directed the first Wonder Woman. She also wrote and directed the film Monster, as well as a lot of television you've probably seen. I watched the movie. I watched both of them. I hadn't seen either of them. I did not see Wonder Woman when it came out. You know why? Because I don't watch comic book movies. I enjoyed... Uh, the Wonder Woman movies, but I don't know what to compare them to. I don't know what a good movie is when it comes to superhero movies or what a bad one is. I was just not a comic book person. And as time goes on and I talk to comic book people, it seems that, you know, I'll admit this, I might have missed out. I might have missed out by not being taught to enjoy sports, comic books, fantasy of any kind, food that was fun. Yeah, I just, uh, I, I think I was... Poorly parented, which we've established, but I was given the gift of a sense of humor most days and uh, the love of music by my folks. But uh, nothing nothing anyone could do to get me to um, be excited about a ball moving across a field of any kind, from racket to racket, person to person, foot to foot. No go, don't care. Hand to hand. Through hoops, off bats, into stands. Over nets, across the field, no go. Not for me. Same with flying people of all sorts. Half animal people, people flying that can do weird things with their bodies, with their eyes, with their hands, with their feet, with their strength, with their brain, with lasers, with the wings, the fly, the cape, whatever. Not for me. Though the elastic guy was interesting. Stretch it out. Stretch it out, and I kind of like Doctor Strange. But as some of you know, later in life, in my 30s, when I was living in an attic that was painted blue, 88-ish, probably 88-ish, 63, 73, 83, oh, still in my 20s, 
So I didn't get into comics till I was 25, 26. And the comics I got into through uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing were Hellblazer and then onward into Sandman and all the underground comics. I did enjoy underground comics, and I've discussed this before. Didn't like superheroes, but I liked the comics where the characters fuck. First time I saw fucking was in a comic book. Sorry, kids. I was like, oh, that's what happens. That's how it works. Art Crumb and Spain. Spain, the comic. Spain Rodriguez. And, uh, yeah, so those I enjoyed, and I continued enjoying. Eight Ball, Hate, um, all the Charles Burns stuff. Yeah. Bag, Crumb, life-changing. Comics did change my life. Art Crumb changed my life. Totally. But, uh, no one from the Marvel Universe had any impact on me whatsoever. But our crumb and his fucking world rewired my brain. Totally. And Hellblazer, that's how out of my mind I was. Hellblazer, when I was reading, I got, I've got the first Hellblazers. When I first started getting those comics, I identified with the character. That's how uh, psychotic I was. That was the remnants of cocaine-induced psychosis i was already you know well into a year of sobriety but the the power of the mind or how i saw it working was <laughs> still pretty uh, expansive so i was reading those john constantine comics going yeah dude i've been there i know what it's like to traverse these worlds and be the middleman for great mystical things i i get it man i i had to do that in los angeles you know i was on a lot of coke but i was definitely managing I was the uh, portal between the two worlds, and sometimes it does get a little tough to handle the forces of evil, and, and it's harder, even harder to identify them. If I had not pulled it together at that time, if I didn't let it go and eventually stay sober and let that psychosis dissipate, I might be a QAnon person right now. I so thoroughly understand how the conspiracy brain works, because I've had it. I've had it. I had to shut it down. Thomas McGuane, the mind is not a boomerang. If you throw it too far, it will not come back. I don't know when or where McGuane said that, but for some reason, he's the guy that I believe said it, and I've been quoting it for my entire life. My entire life. I med- I've been meditating pretty regularly in the morning for about 10 minutes trying to do it, trying to work that muscle. Work the muscle that gets the thoughts away from you just being with your breath. There is a muscle to it, and I'm kind of digging it. Because once you start wading away or pushing aside the noise, the thoughts, and just getting into that zone where you're on the cycle of your breath and and utilizing that skill really kind of introduces you in a quiet way to who you are. Given that we're being introduced to who we are in an emotional and psychological way because of this isolation and claustrophobia of plague terror, the meditation kind of like gets out from under that and it just lets you sit with yourself. And I think during the day, working that muscle or trying to work that muscle helps you out, grounds you, makes you know who you are in almost a primitive way that you don't even need to understand. You just know that maybe for 30 seconds to five minutes, you uh, you sat comfortably in your vessel um, with a clear head. 
Helps. Definitely helps. So I talked to Patty Jenkins a few weeks ago. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984, her movie, is now streaming on HBO Max and is playing in theaters. We recorded this before it was announced that she'll be directing the next Star Wars movie, so don't expect any chat about that. But this is me talking, and it's a great talk uh, to Patty Jenkins, the film director. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. Hey. I'm very intrigued by your workspace. I'm intrigued by yours. You're very backlit. And as a director, it's it's not, uh, you, are, you are a shadow of yourself. I'll tell you why. It's because my son is now working in my office. Right. So I, I can't be there. So we just moved and I'm working in my husband's office and it's like a mess. I'll so see. I can move. But then I'm always like, Jesus, what? I don't I have no idea what's going on here. It's like just half built. I think it's OK. I think I can okay. see you. Well, I was just going to say, and I don't want to start off on a on a downer note, but yeah. I just loved, loved, loved Lynn and yeah. Lynn Shelton's work. So I just wanted to 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 say I'm so sorry. I was so heartbroken for you and for all of us. Yeah, she was a special person. Did uh, great yeah. movies, and you know, did you ever great know her? Movies. We wrote wrote to each other all the time. Yeah, oh, really? and so I I was in touch with her. Yeah, her manager Rosalie was my manager at one point too. Oh, okay. And so she and I started communicating a long, long time ago, and like we're always big fans of each other. And so yeah. it was just just so I was so bummed I didn't get to meet her more. Yeah, well, she liked to write, so she always wrote good emails. She did great emails. <laughs> yeah, great emails. Well, I mean, I I imagine that like I don't like I I imagine that your Initial success with Monster must have been very inspiring to her, I would imagine. Is that where it started, the communication? Yeah, it did. It did. I think, I think you know, she really liked it. And then I really loved some of her films. And so I think we started talking about it in that way. And I think we would ask each other advice about different crew people and things like that. But yeah, she was super supportive from early on. It's so wild how, where you've come from that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from that yeah. that uh, that sympathetic somehow you you were able to muster enough empathy to make a full character out of that broken horrific person yeah and uh, and and kind of uh, now you're you're dealing with the uh, the most empowered mythic uh, feminine creation that we know <laughs> I know so weird but to me it doesn't feel it, it like it's it's very odd because it does not feel as different as it does to other people. In both cases, it's like trying to humanize an unbelievable journey. Yes. 
and make you feel like you're in the shoes. Like with Eileen, what was so interesting to me was when I watched her, I could tell that this was not a person who loved killing or or an, or a, a psychopath. Right. This was somebody who life experience had gotten her to a place where the best idea was to murder seven men. You know. Yeah, right. And so it was like, how how do you get there? And clearly, people get there all the time. Clearly, you know, men go to war and go and do it in droves become killers, you know? Well, that, but that there's a, there's sort of a system in place for that, uh, right? There is, but in, but in this case, there's a system too, which is she'd been like the thing that I thought was so amazing was people were so perplexed by like, I don't get it. She's a man hating lesbian. But if you looked at her life, she'd been in, in the hospital like 16 times for having been beaten and raped almost to death. And then she carried a gun for 20 years before she ever shot somebody. So you're like, eventually somebody's going to rape you and you're going to defend yourself probably, you know? Yeah. And so that in that same way, it's her story was so heartbreaking because it was almost like the power, the strength of character that could have made her an amazing person with a different life experience turned her into a survivor that defended herself. And then it goes too far, you know? And also that, that you were able to uh, dig a love story out of there and, and yeah, which really, humanized that that person did you were you did i don't know like i didn't read a lot of the press on that but did you were you able to meet her i was right once i started to write the film i wrote to her and went in prison and so we wrote to each other for about six or seven months we were never friends (laughs) she never she never trusted me or anyone and she was always kind of very very wary but then charlize and i were about to go down and meet her uh, and they scheduled her execution in like a month. And so we didn't get to, but then the night before she was executed to my shock, because she had been like demanding millions of dollars and all of these things and like very, very untrusting of us. She left all of the letters that she and her girlfriend wrote over an 11 year period for us to read Oh, the really? night before she was executed. Yeah. And it was sort of her, it was sort of like her optimism. Like at the last moment, she was just hoping I could do something good with it and just gave it to us for nothing. And so I got to read thousands of personal letters between her and and the real woman who right. was her girlfriend, which was just, I mean, and even the information you read in there is so informative to, to Charlize's performance as well. Yeah. And heartbreaking, you know, just like heartbreaking. I can't imagine it. And, it, and it's yeah. all infused with the, the sort of horror of her being executed and the people she killed. Like when you have yeah. artifacts of people that have transgressed to that point, they're kind of electric on into themselves, right? Totally. And, and that carried through for the rest of the film. Huh. It was a really electric air to filming it where you could sort of feel the truth. I mean, we were shooting in the same exact places where it all went down. So like murders happened here and people were caught here and this is, and so, there was this kind of electricity of dancing with truth. Yeah. That is something I'll never forget. Cause you had it on the page and you had it on the, yeah. in the geography of the thing. Yeah. Exactly. I, I mean, well, it definitely comes through. I mean, uh, the way you shot it was great, but also, you know, Charlize is like, I don't even know where that came from. I mean, she's yeah. a great actress, but there was a possession going on there. There was a possession. <laughs> it's funny. Cause that's exactly actually what it felt like. <laughs> I felt like a, I felt like I was possessed by it when I wrote it. Mm. And I remember my ex-boyfriend, like I was sitting, I wrote the whole thing in like seven weeks and just wrote 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day. And I remember my ex-boyfriend coming into the room and I would look up at him and he would go, whoa, 
Really? I leaned in the house and walked back out because I was just like completely in it, you know? And then I definitely saw it on her. But what was the, like, we can go back. I mean, where'd you grow up? I grew up all over the world before I was six because your, your dad was in the military. Yeah. Yeah. And so I grew up all over the place. And then we ended up in Kansas at the University of Kansas, where my mother started putting herself through school. And so then then I sort of lived in Kansas till the middle of high school. But we left all the time. So we would like spend I spent every summer in Mississippi. And why those places? My grandparents lived in Mississippi. My and then I lived for eight months or something in Long Island. So it was like, it was, I kind of lived in Kansas for a long time and I kind of in stayed Long really Island. connected. Yeah. Who's in, in Long, Long Island? Island? My cousins, my what aunt, did... uncle, and cousin. Jews? No, oh. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't wish. They're wonderful people. No, yeah. I'm just saying I've always felt so, I, I've always felt so confused that I'm not Jewish. Really? <laughs> just, just because? <laughs> Just because all my friends are Jewish and like, all, like, I'm just like, I don't understand. I thought when I did my DNA, it would definitely come out that I was Jewish. And I was like, no, I'm not Jewish. That's so crazy. Nothing. No Jew in there. <laughs> no, nothing. Uh, exactly. So your dad was from Mississippi? No, my, my grandparents were also in the military. So they oh. had gone into shipbuilding by that time and ended up in Mississippi. They're not from, they're from New York. So I was visiting them okay. and my father had passed away. Yeah. But he, he was, he, but he didn't die in, in in a war he died in a plane crash yeah doing sim- simulated battle oh my god yeah how old were you seven seven yeah in a plane crash that must have ugh, i can't even imagine yeah what that it's did. definitely the definitive experience of my life what's well, the know? worst like, I, way I, to it's the worst thing because you have these you all you do is like have these images of possibilities yeah of fiery totally. horribleness. And, and can I tell you at seven, the confusion of just as you're like, you, you're, first of all, you write your entire identity based on your experiences. So you're like, I am a person who always, so to, to get that where it's like, oh, you didn't even know that could happen. And now it's like, oh no, the person you want to see the most, you'll never see them again, you know? And like, and then the world is trying to give you these messages of like, you can dream anything, you can have anything. And I'm like, well, I want my dad back. No, never, never that, that, you know? Except that. Yeah. But your mom must have been great mother. Yeah, thank you. She is, she's a great mother. She's a great mother. Because, I mean, you you know, you can like, I think that you could have ended up with borderline personality disorder or something crazy if you didn't have the great mother, I'm, I'm assuming. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I really did have a great mother. And the interesting thing that also was true about it was I'm a pretty spiritual person. I don't believe in any specific religion or anything, but I've always been very open-minded yeah. about all the things in the world. So I think in my in my head, I turned him into the perfect father who was with me all the time. And so in the weirdest right. way, I had a father who thought I was amazing. He never yelled at me, never told me what to do, you know? And so I sort of Oh, I turned him right. into. So he's looking over you. Exactly. So I think in this weird way, I ended up being even mm. more nurtured by my own imagination. But like, but that's sort of interesting to me in that because there is an element of that at some point we have to self-parent, and and if you have shitty parents, you when you're too young to know it, you kind of put in place a self-parent that's bad. Yeah. But because of your situation, you're like you, your self-parent was your actual parent. Yeah. 
based on what you knew of him. Yeah. And and he was great. And he was a fighter pilot and he was cool and he's like awesome <laughs> and flew jets over, you know, it's like all these things. Do you remember him? Oh yeah. Yeah, very well. I love I was so, you know, and maybe it's the opposite sex parent thing, but I also think I'm a lot like uh -huh. him. I was very, very, very fixated on him as a kid. So it was, you know, I remember all kinds of things. But not now, even though you have a, two movies with a fighter pilot yeah. in it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. That's the funny thing is I'm like, you want to go to my well? Drop in. Drop right in. <laughs> Do you have siblings? Yeah, I have a sister, but she had a different father. Oh, okay. And your mom's a, a teacher? No, my mom is an environmental scientist. Oh, my God. She must be yeah. panicking. She's been panicking my entire life. And it's, it is so depressing. I was just talking to her about it because she was at the EPA and she, her boyfriend was the person who reported about climate change to the White House and different places. To the monster? And she would no back in back in the seventies oh. and the eighties. And, oh, and wow. so she was just lamenting how she's like, this is what we were trying to say. We were trying to say, and apparently like Ford and, and, uh, and Jimmy Carter, like there were a few people who really heard it, but right. then, you know, everything that has happened since it's like, she was like, yeah, I know she's been telling me about all these things my whole life. And it was drove me up the wall and I hated it. You know, where she's like, don't the plastic and the PCBs and this, yeah. my entire you know, organic and don't eat the genetically yeah. modified things. Right. And that, and now you're like, well, here we are here. Yeah, we the sky's are. on all, fire. Yeah. All the chickens came home to roost. Yeah. It's a mess. Now do yeah. you, now do you heed her advice? Do you eat better? Do you, I, it, I do. I do. I eat, I eat pretty well. And I'm that now I'm that irritating mom, by the way, my mom is like, my son is like, Jesus Christ, mom. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to have a life. Now, yeah, now no one sucks. can leave their house. Exactly. Totally. So when did you start, uh, getting involved with, uh, wanting to express yourself as an artist person? I think immediately, as soon as that was an option, it was both like the, the people that I was identifying with were kind of I was in the punk scene and the hardcore scene. And so we Where? were all in Kansas in Kansas. Yeah. And in DC. in DC, DC too, there was an ama the most amazing scene in the world happened in Kansas. I wish I could tell this story one day, but I was in Lawrence, Kansas. And there was this little place where you could have shows called the outhouse. So yeah. starting in like 82, 83, 84, they started having these tiny shows, but every band that was driving across the country had nowhere to go, but the outhouse. Right. So well, that's saw, the way punk worked. I know I had, I saw everyone. We just did it. You, there was not a show you would miss. You would go to every single show. My sister was a punk rocker first. You'd go to every show. So when I look back at the shows that I saw and then like, you know, Henry Rollins would be at the restaurant the next day and sleeping sure. at your friend's house. Right, right. That's how the network worked. Exactly. It was so amazing. So I feel like so lucky. And then I actually also interestingly witnessed that when I first started going to shows, it was kind of just weird misfits and it wasn't really about the look. It was like a skateboarder and the person, the person who's from yeah. India, it's like every outsider, you know, right, just not and, mainstream, not, not no. uh, high school culture. No. And then Outsiders. I watched my, in, in my, in front of my eyes, it yeah. morphed into a bigger and bigger scene. And right. now there's the long hairs and the straight edge and the skinheads and, and right. the fights and every, the violence and the guns and the drugs. And like, yeah. right when I left, like I was, friends with all these guys who were like stealing credit card numbers and buying guns with them. And then boom, I left and like, they went to jail and shot each other. And it just like, Oh, it's just so sad. He got out from under the wire. 
got out under the wire before the drugs and the guns ruined everything. But what you saw, like the Minutemen and like... Uh, many like, times. Uh, oh, oh, really? And many and times, yeah. X and my and favorite show, and I, I can't remember what year it was, if it was 85 or 84 or 86, but the best show I ever saw was The Bad Brains in the in the Rain. And I think the lineup was, I can't, I can't find the exact thing, but I think the lineup was that it was... The Red Hot Chili Peppers opening for Fishbone, opening for Bad Brains. So you think about the flip, what? like the biggest band was the Bad Brains. And, yeah. and, like, and it was like 20 people because it was raining. And so like, no, it, it was when I think back. And, and by the way, the Bad Brains was the band that like blew my mind. Yeah, they are you definitely like, mind blowers. Yeah, that because the, the music was not that great <laughs> leading up to the bad brains and the bad brain suddenly was just like, I didn't even know this was possible. Like, right. It's such tight, amazing music. So you were but like, yeah, I saw all those guys and you're right up close. Like you, you, your timing totally. was correct. Oh, it was wonderful. Did you know, didn't, wasn't, was William Burroughs in Kansas by he that was. time? He was, was he, did I'll, he show up at the club sometimes? No, he never showed up there. But my first job in film was my mom was kind of hip to all this stuff, of course, because Burroughs yeah. was there. And it's great that you know that. So he did this thing called the River City Reunion, where he brought all the beat poets to all the old the men. University. He brought all the old guys, all of them, Ferlinghetti and, and Ginsburg and, and Corso. Yeah. yeah. So my mom was friends with the documentary filmmaker, Mark Kaplan, who was going to make a documentary about it. Yeah. And she made me be his P.A., <laughs> And I was like, I had no idea these people were really famous. I really was like, ugh, whatever. My mom's <laughs> generation. What's whatever. with these old so, guys? So my first job was when I was about 14 yeah. or 13, and I was his PA. And he ended up assigning me to Allen Ginsberg, who I had to follow around <laughs> Allen Ginsberg. He was disappointed and, you weren't a boy. Oh, yes, he was. And it's funny because <laughs> somebody somebody asked um, William Burroughs's, uh, you know, partner of many many years uh, about me at some point because the they guy the story who uh, he, took care of him uh what was yeah. his name uh his name? or uh braun Haller. it's a german name oh man i remember and he said something about like i never even met her i never saw her and i'm like no i know you guys didn't see me but i was standing right there i was invisible <laughs> to all you guys but there's there's actually a postcard at city lights bookstore of keith herring drawing uh this this like obscene drawing on the ground and yeah. Allen Ginsberg standing and talking to him. And I have a Mohawk and I'm standing right behind them in this postcard. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like my, one of my favorite little mementos. <laughs> That's great. But yeah. It was great. It was great. Oh. It was fun. And it's amazing to think I was like living in Kansas and I had just met Matt Dillon who was filming a thing for Kansas and he was super pissed off at me about something. So I'm standing with those guys and trying to duck Matt Dillon because he thinks I've stolen a hundred dollars for him from him. What? Like to think that's all going down in Kansas is so hilarious. What was Matt Dillon doing there? Was he part of it? He was filming a movie called Kansas. So the theater where the beatnik experience is happening is yeah. Caddy Corner to the yeah. hotel that Matt Dillon's staying in. And Matt, who's gone on to be a very good friend of mine now for many years. But Matt, I because I was a punk rocker, he would always come up to me to try to figure out where the shows were at, <laughs> things were going on. So I wow. knew him and then he dropped a hundred dollars and I took it and I didn't give it back to him. And then he found out that he was very angry with me. And this is a joke we still have to this day. The hundred dollar joke. You owe me a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in essence, uh, the beatniks are responsible for your first job in movies. Yes, totally true. Because of your mom. And you got to see 
old William Burroughs up close and Allen and all those guys. All it's weird them, yeah. because like all the punk rockers owe William certainly a debt of gratitude for blowing something open. Yeah, I know. Grauerholtz, James Grauerholtz. That's, that's it, Grauerholtz. Yep. That's right. Thank God. Did you look it up or you just remembered? No, I just remembered. God, I that's his, great. I know his name so well. Yeah, he's a nice guy. He sort of took care yeah. of him. Yeah, yeah, really did. Well, then, so that's a that's a hell of a baptism into the world of art. Yeah, so I didn't totally answer your question, but it, what it was was that's what we all were doing. We're making flyers. We're taking photographs. We're in bands, you know, and Punk I tried thing. all of I did all those things. I was in a band. I was did this, you know, all of those things. What'd you do in a band? I, Sing? I did so badly, so badly that I, it didn't last long. Yeah. Um, but that's what it was. What was interesting was I was so drawn to the arts like a moth to the flame. Yeah, but I, I was it. also capable of having self-awareness to be like, I'm not so good at that. <laughs> that's not so good. Literally from the moment I was in junior high and started doing that stuff all the way up until I went to painting school at Cooper Union and had like had figured out that I wanted to be in the fine arts and figured out that Cooper Union was the my favorite school in the world and where I was dying to go and got in there. And it was only once I got in there that I took a film course and like my head just exploded. But it's interesting that the, 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 the sort of punk idea, the punk aesthetic really engaged all possibilities, right? Cause yeah. you, you know, you were printing, you were doing paintings, you totally. could do you know, silk screens, you could do yeah. music. Like, yeah. it, like if, if, if there's any kind of like guerrilla education to all the arts, it's that photography. Totally. Right. Doing crazy hair things. You're making your own clothing. You're, it yeah. was, it, it's such a hotbed for creativity. How'd you land on painting? I think I, I, when you're in, it's weird because I actually had a really extensive education in, in obscure film because my mom's a film buff and the university had this theater where they played great European and obscure films all the time. What was the, what was the one movie that like kind of blew your mind during the punk period where you realized like, oh, there's weird movies out there. Oh my God. I got really, <laughs> this is, it's funny. I got really into Ken Russell at one point oh, and he's yeah. making like Lair of the White Worm and, yeah. and Salome's Last Dance. And so the weirder, the better for me. Didn't he do Altered States eventually? Didn't did Ken Russell? Did he? Do, like I know the layer of the white. He might worm. have. I, Gothic. I remember loving. Gothic. Anyway, I just, yeah. I just loved all those weird, weird films. Yeah. But yet somehow, when you're living in the Midwest, nobody ever tells you you could be a filmmaker. It just it it was. And 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 sometimes people will ask me now, like, when did you decide you wanted to be a director? I'm like. I still don't want to be a director. I couldn't care less about being a director. I just want to make Come cool on. films. <laughs> yeah, you know? you're right. I never, I never saw the role of a director and wanted to be it. I just want to make cool. What I just wanted to make the films I see in my head. You know. Right. And so that that was it. I'm I'm very emotion based. I also think like us talking about my father, that burning damage and pain. I I had no outlet for. Like I couldn't figure out how to express it in a two-dimensional image. The, you mean you the know? grief of him being the gone? The grief and the and the romance of tragedy. You know, I was just absolutely in engaged in like a dance with the romance of tragedy and longing. Well, because now you had you, you kind you, you you sort of that was your way. You had to be to process yeah. it. Yeah, totally. And there was no outlet for that in in so many of these arts. And so uh -huh. I, I remember that. Almost the moment that I decided I wanted to do this was when Peter Gabriel did the soundtrack to Birdie. 
And I was living in DC at the time. And I would go to New York every weekend because my, my friends all were in New York. What were you doing and in DC? She, oh, when your mom worked for the government? My mom moved to DC. Okay, right, yeah. Right. And then, and then, but I, I was just, my head was in New York. So I took right, the train sure, every sure, weekend sure, to New York. Yeah, yeah. And I remember him doing that score and listening to the soundtrack of Birdie. And it was so tragic and beautiful and all of these things. And I was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> You know, I wasn't putting my finger on the fact that it was going to be so, filmmaking. Oh, so the music but I was made like, you. I want to make you feel these things. I want to express these things. So that's when you realized it all worked together in film. Yeah. And so I think I was even starting to write stories that went with the music, but just not until I took a film course. And then all of a sudden taking a film course, they'd have to kick me out of the Steenbeck at midnight because I would just be putting music to picture and music to picture and music to picture. And I was like, it was the first time I had a completely authentic relationship to art where I couldn't get enough. And I just wanted to shoot and I wanted to look and I wanted to shoot and I wanted to look. And, and, and so it just took off from there. That's the basics sight and sound. Yeah. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so from there, but like, what about, what do I, how, how much painting did you actually do? I painted while I was there because there actually was no real film degree. Like there was only an experimental film department. That was, yeah, that was no mainly ma it was mainly for making like MoMA installation pieces. It wasn't for making narrative film. So strange shorts with colors and things. Yeah. So like even my a, teachers yeah. would say, we don't know how to teach you what it is you're trying to do. And I was making the worst narrative short films no idea about crossing the line or how to do it. Or, I still don't quite understand so, that. Yeah. It's, yeah. I could explain it to you, but it would be boring for your podcast. Well, that's yeah. something that you, it becomes <laughs> second nature once you totally. start directing. Yeah, totally. Totally. Right. Um, all right. So, so you're a Cooper, you finish at Cooper. Yeah. And you got a degree in painting. No, I stay all four years. I get a degree in fine arts. I'm like an independent study film student and I just make my own films the whole time. But I still keep taking silk screening and typography and painting. And, you know, I, I take the other courses I'm supposed to take. But you're obsessed with film. Obsessed with film and, and how I'm going to get there. So then I, I become fixated on getting an internship at a product at a commercial production company. The artist in me was like, well, then let me get my hands on the materials. Right. Like it was never about like, let's write a film and get it financed. Like I didn't even know how to do that sort of thing. I was like, let me, let me get my hand on the cameras, on the big right. cameras. And so I, I ended up getting an internship at a, at a, a, a commercial production company called Epoch Films. Mm. And then very quickly I ended up getting onto the set of a, of a commercial that was being shot where I knew the camera loader. And he said, come work with us. If you work for free, it was like this top-notch group of, of, of camera people. If you, if you can work for free, they'll train you, but you have to train for like six months for free. And these are those big how... film cartridges. Like yeah. this was, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was like, and, and this was like top line commercial. Right. So they were doing right. Nike and American Express right. and whatever. Yeah, okay. So I worked with them and then boom, I was a camera person. And then I was a camera person for nine years. Nine eight, years. Eight and a half. Yeah, for a long time because I got successful at it and the jobs were constant and addictive Reunion? and so we in the union yeah totally in the union and you're doing all the you know and rap it was the height of rap videos so i did more rap videos than i can ever describe it's so funny so many of them are like now legendary things and at yeah. the time they weren't so yeah but it's like so many of the, mary J and biggie and Wu-Tang and I, and you know, all the, I did most of the puffy videos and you know, you were just on the crew on a camera, just on the crew constantly. Yeah. On, on these things. So that was your life. So you're living it. But like at that time, 
were you aware that you were just getting an education or were you also making your own shit? The the fantasy was that I was about to make my own shit the whole time. But it was like it was I was the victim of that lifestyle, which is if you hook up with certain DPs and you hook up with certain crew and certain first ACs when I was a second, like you you got to do this. So I ended up working all the time. And that's why it was like. So I was, I was aware of the education as for the first few years. Right. Yeah. Right. But then being a camera person is so all consuming. I wasn't learning anything about directing. So then I was actually just berating myself and so hard on myself for the last five years of it. Like, what are you doing? I was making a ton of money, but I was like, you're not getting anywhere. Do you still do that? Finally? No, finally. No, I've actually reached a point now where I'm like, Wow! I, if I don't make another film, like that's not bad. That was great. I but when you is it part of your process though to beat the shit out of yourself? Oh yeah. To, to, when I'm making a film, I'm yeah. extremely hard on myself. Yeah, mm. and that it's and that you're missing something, and it's, I can't sleep. I wake up at three in the morning. You're dropping the ball. It's got to be the moment should be different. You are ha- not quite there. But by the way, it's I believe in it. Because if you believe you, in, in self-flagellation too. Yeah. The myth of that, if you can stop doing it, no, the, every time I've ever stopped doing it, you yeah. miss something, <laughs> you know, and all the people I know who learn how to be at peace with themselves. And like, yeah. I've, I, by the way, I love directing now and I have a great time on set. Yeah. But every time you start to assume it's going to work out, you are going to miss something. Like it's, you got to be vigilant on, uh-huh. on yourself and on quality. Sure. Yeah. And you're saying that people who are at peace with themselves, that's when they start to wane. That's yeah. They, <laughs> and you watch it as people get older, you'll hear all of their descriptives, all the some, some of them being great filmmakers. And they say, yeah. you know, I used to torture myself and stay up all night, but now I just, and I'm like, I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can I, tell your films I saw that last down. movie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what I think. I'm like, if you're not living it and desperately engaged with it, it shows, it starts to show up. So now a couple questions after five years of beating yourself up for having a gig as a camera person, what, what got you into uh, learning how to direct? And then also like, did you make relationships on those crews that you keep today? Do you still, do you use anybody that you knew back then? I have not been able to use anybody that I knew back then. Uh, I haven't because they're all on kind of their own journey that went a different direction. Like, Uh but but meanwhile, I do stay in touch with a number of people, particularly the, the camera crew guys that I that I worked with. I, I love them and I miss them so much. And there's so many crew people I desperately miss. There there were, you know, some people like that I knew, you know, who who came to Hollywood and I, you know, I see them here and there. But no, I haven't ended up working with any of those guys. But then what ha- so what then what happened was when I hit the eight year mark. I remember, you know, you were in New York and you saw those people who kind of defined what they were and started to succeed. Sure. And I was watching a bunch of my friends who were would say, I'm an actor. And particularly if they had parents to support them, yeah. now they're an actor. Like who? Oh, just all kinds of people. I mean, so many different people. Anybody you know, we know? Yeah, I remember knowing David Blaine when he's like a teenager and, you know, like, <laughs> uh, like that guy. all the all of the guys from Stella and, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. like sure. all, all those, so, Jeff Ross. like So, so you so, were there so when I was people. there. Yeah. No, we were at all the, what was the, the Luna? Luna what was it? Luna the Lounge. Dave? Yeah, exactly. That, all those things. So just, I feel like almost everybody, you, like, it's just like, there were so many people around that I was seeing and we were right. all just like weirdo yeah. people trying to do their thing. And right. now they're everywhere. 
Right. They're like every Gavin O'Connor was a good friend. Now he, he's a big director doing stuff. It's crazy. It's, also, it's so fu- it's so funny. Some of them have arced and are now plateaued. I mean, some of them actually, some of those people have had their time. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a total trip, you know? Yeah. But, um, but so I just hit that point where I was like, I can't get off the train because I keep needing to pay my rent. So I have to keep working and this isn't going to work. So I was like, so you either need to, at every point in my career, I've been totally fine to let myself give up the dream. You know, I was like, just don't, you don't have to be a director, just move to Long Island and get married and have kids and be a camera person or an operator or something. And I was like, no, I want, and, and, and then I almost, almost outside of myself, like, wow, man, you must, you're really serious about this, I guess. So I took out a bunch of loans, applied to AFI, because I heard you could get in only as a director, which I was like, I'm not going to go learn how to do sound after eight years of being a crew person. I don't need the rudimentary yeah. education of film. I just want to go as a director. And I got in and I just pedaled to the metal. Like if I don't make it in these was two that New years, York? that was here in LA. So That's what brought me to LA. Is uh, is getting into AFI. Getting into AFI, I was like, okay, that's it. I remember being in my apartment on the on on 76th Street between Columbus and Central Park West. And all I want to do was be a director and move to the corner with a view of Central Park. Mm. And I was like, I can't get there from here. Yeah. <laughs> so I gotta go to gotta go to LA <laughs> and make yeah, it to, as a director. Take a detour. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then that's what crossed me over to directing. And that education is that like what's the setting for that? I don't even know how AFI works. AFI is a very small school and you get in as what you get in as. So it's okay. very, and very international, pretty artsy compared to some of the schools. Like it's, it's much more kind of a lot of European film. Two-year program? A two-year program. And so you get in as a director. And back then it was, you had to be invited back for the second year. So you get in as a director, you make a bunch of, of things, and then you come back the second year and you make your bigger short film, which I made a female superhero short film. And then, you know. So you've always been hung up on superheroes? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I, I've always loved the metaphor. So it was literally two or three months after my father died. My mom dropped my sister and I at Superman. Yeah. And, and you think about how emotional Superman, he gets, he loses his father in the beginning. And then he gets sent to earth. And then his father dies again. I sobbed. Like I was like just profoundly rocked by that movie and then the release when he goes on to become a superhero and save the world and do these things it just huh. had this deep impactful effect on well, me yeah as a well, kid. If, you're, if you're in the middle of of your own grieving and unable to wrap your brain around it and then you see it processed for you in this mythic story and wow that must have been very uh, and you're what, eight years old seven seven yeah that must have like reconfigured your whole brain Totally. So even though I always assumed I would be an artsy filmmaker, and mm. when I made Monster, I assumed I was going to be that kind of person. The truth was, I have always had an appreciation, not for all tentpoles, but for the, the certain archetypal massive movie that can affect an audience in that way, like has always been loomed large in my subconscious. But, but like, right, but not just an audience, a child's brain. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, hugely. But yeah. you would never have foreseen. I mean, I I imagine you must have excavated that memory in 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 relation to the. When did you start really kind of integrating that into your story? Was it around 
when you did Wonder Woman or before? Did you always know that? I mean, I, I, in retrospect, I realize I always knew it, but it's one of those things you only realize in retrospect. I remember this moment out standing outside of Cooper Union and at Cooper, I was making these like Woody Allen meets girls esque films uh-huh. starring myself and my friends, you know, because right. there's, there, there's no one else you can film. So sure. you're just running around with a camera and then we're very indie, you know, and I remember somebody saying to me, you, this is so great. You could be like a girl doing like the Woody Allen type of film. And I remember st- I was standing at the cube outside of the Cooper building. Yeah. And I remember saying, no, I want to get my hands on the big game. And I was a ma- I was feeling Superman. I remember I was seeing like sparkly lights in my head and I was like, I just want to, I want to have a shot at the big emotions. It wasn't the big game. It wasn't the big success. I wanted to play in the well of the big emotions, you know? Yeah. You want, yeah. And so it was funny, like now that I look back, I'm like, oh, it was Wonder Woman, (laughs) you know, who I loved Wonder Woman. But that was why I made the, the, then I made the female superhero short film. And then after I made Monster, when I went around to all the studios, the first thing I told Warner Brothers is I want to make Wonder Woman. Like nobody's made Wonder Woman. So that was like 2004. You know, I told them I wanted to well, make Wonder Woman. Let me ask you though. Let me ask you. So like, the, so it seems to me that if I can put this together in my own head by, by listening to you, that, you know, that monster was your art film. That mm-hmm. in, in a sense that this is how I'm going to explore the, the sort of non-mythological. Th- this story is a story of a of a broken, damaged person in a lot of trouble that requires a certain type of attention. I have the chops to do this. This is what I learned to do, and I need to get this out of my system. Yeah, and it's the big emotions too, even though it's, it's a huge small emotions. Movie. So that that's the thing. It fit the bill for me of not wanting to do something. You know, you you you. I'm sure you remember there was something bugging me deeply about the art world when I was at Cooper. It had become so meta ironic, conceptual. And I remember having grown up with the tragedy of my father. I was like, man, it's been a long time since we had a war, guys. What are you doing? Barbie shoes in the room and then we're all going to laugh about it for 20 minutes. Like nobody's even trying to do great. You're just all escaping under the guise of uh, you don't get it. I'm too blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it was. And so it really bugged me. And I remember really thinking I'm doing it. I don't, you could be made fun of for trying to do emotional things. Cause if you didn't hit the nail on the head, you were vulnerable. Right. And I remember having this moment where I was like, I'm going to keep doing this and I'm going to keep doing this until I figure out how to do it. I don't care. You can tell me I'm cheesy. You can tell me I'm not cool. I've right. been cool. I've, I've been, grew up around the punk scene and everybody I knew was cooler. Than, You're going to risk the vulnerability. Yeah. I'm going to do it. I want, I want to try to figure out how to do this. So monster hit, hit, fit the bill completely. And also it spoke to tragedy. It was like, guess what? Sometimes not everything works out. Not, not everything happens for a reason. Some people's lives are terrible. And that, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing you did with her is that mm-hmm. when I really think like her vulnerability was like devastating because yeah. like the way she played it and however you guys conceived of that dynamic is that she was so ripped open in all her anger and all her violence like the vulnerability was almost unbearable yeah totally totally so like yeah. not only did you achieve it you you overshot <laughs> in a, you know in the sense that like not only did you create a, a a vulnerability a human vulnerability with big emotions but you did it in 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 such a way that kind of defied anything that had been done before in terms of uh, a female protagonist 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I, 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 as dark as it was, I appreciate that. It was, it was also uniting with who, with Charlize who had that to give as well, had that same misunderstanding. She'd had her own childhood tragedy. Mm. And so it was like kind of a, a moment for the two of us to come together to like express the nuance of how fucked up things can be, you know, like how, how, how subtle that darkness can be. And living with the darkness. Yeah. Your whole life. But so how does like, I guess my question is like from independent, like, cause like, I know I've met a couple other people. Well, there's only a few of you. Well, I've talked to Favreau about, you, you know, the, the leap from indie to, to, to big movies. I guess I talked to him about it, but I mean, what really happens, you know, after monster? I mean, that's an Oscar winning movie, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a one I never know how to answer because it was so perplexing to me who's worked every day of my life. And all of a sudden I, I hit this weird thing. It's, I was just telling the story the other day and it's so funny. I lost so much money making monster that when I came out of it, so I've got, I've accrued all this debt now from being in, in film school that I'm supposed right. to start paying off. Yeah. But I get paid $60,000. I think you can pay it off now. Yeah, finally now. <laughs> it took a long time. Yeah. But the um I made I, I made no money for, for Monster. And so I ended up eighty thousand dollars in debt after Monster. And all of a sudden it was this thing where everybody was like, What's your next film? And I was like, I don't wanna do film like that. Like there wasn't anything ready to go that was that I Wanted, thought, thought well, because like you oh, so after all is said and done, you make this masterpiece, it gets all this critical acclaim, but you're broke. And you're in the Super hole. Broke. So why the fuck would I do that? that's a hilarious story because I'm flying around to from places and uh-huh. they put per diem on your hotel room yeah. and I don't have any other money. Right. So I, people are like, you want to go out to dinner? And I'm like, nah. <laughs> Bellman's like, can we carry your bags? I'm like, I got it. I got it. Because I have nothing to tip them with. It was yeah. just. Can we go out to dinner? Yeah, if you come to the hotel. If you come to the yeah. hotel. We can... <laughs> exactly. It yeah. was just absurd. Right. But, um, so suddenly I had no way to support myself. And I was like, wait, so now I'm, now I'm a known director. I can't AC anymore. This is, this is terrible. I have no way to make money. You, wanted, you, you actually wanted to go back to doing film. Right. Yeah. I just want, I need to make money while I think about what my next film is going to be. Cause of course making monster was devastating emotionally. You know, it was so dark and so heavy. And then I finished the movie and it hit theaters like three weeks later. And so I was like reeling when that success hit, I was just like, Whoa, give me a second guys. You know? So, um, but, but what then ended up happening was like, I didn't, I didn't want to work in the studio system. I wanted to write on spec. So I need a way because I don't believe in getting notes from people. And at that stage, you know, I'm like, let me figure out what I'm doing and then you can give me notes, but I don't want to start talking about notes before I even start writing. So then I start doing TV pilots and then I have a movie that I was going to do that I super loved. And then, you know, it, it kept being a struggle and I was going to make a movie about Chuck Yeager for two years. But, and but, but Monster through. got you the gig. Like, you know, you, you were, a, you had, you had chops as a director and you could, TV wanted yeah. to hire you. You could get gigs. Yeah. Chuck Yeager. How'd that happen? Because of my father being a fighter pilot. And I, I put the word out. I wanted to do the Chuck Yeager story someday. Okay. I didn't want to do it right after monster. I was like, didn't feel ready yet, but then Chuck responded and it had fallen out somewhere else. And so then I was with Chuck and doing research and traveling around and meeting him and watching him fly and things. But he, he there was just the rights, his life rights yeah. got super complicated huh. and it just got to a place where it was just 
it was there was no way and i just got, i fatigued on it finally did you too. like me did like, you oh. like hanging around with chuck yeah man <laughs> i mean i have a, for, coming from a family of fire pilots it was yeah. like unbelievable and like yeah. hearing his stories and watching right. him fly i got to go out to edwards air force base with him and watch him fly. i mean it was incredible oh wow yes. so he was getting up in the planes he must have been in his like 60s or something when you knew oh right. no he was in his 70s or 80s then. oh so he's, man yeah yeah so it was wonderful I, but anyway you know some of it was naivete of like working on something for too long when you don't have the life rights some of it was but there was some gender stuff for sure like i felt like there definitely was I feel super lucky that that everybody in the industry wanted to hire me, but I felt like they wanted to hire me like a beard. They wanted me to walk around on set being a woman director, but it was their story <laughs> right. and their their vision. So they could go, we, look, we got one. There she is. Look at her. Exactly. Yeah. And, and my ideas, they were like, oh, I don't, I don't even want to read. The, they wouldn't even read the script. Right. You know, it was such mistrust of a different way of doing things and a different point of view. So that was definitely happening in there. And so even all the way up to Wonder Woman, when I first joined Wonder Woman, it was kind of like, yeah, okay, but let's do it this other way. And I was like, that, that's, that's not how a, women don't want to see that. And that's not her being harsh and tough and cutting people's heads off. Like that's, that's not what Wonder Woman, I'm a Wonder Woman fan. I don't, that's not what we're yeah, looking you're, for. You already made one monster movie about a, a woman. Yeah. So that, so still I could feel that little shaky nervousness of my point of view. But how you know? did that sort of like, but like that script had been in, in like that property had been around forever, right? Yeah. And how did you, yeah. like, how did you come to it? So I told Warner Brothers I wanted to do it in 2004. Right. I met with them about it every two years yeah. be between then and then and when I finally did it. They didn't it. want to do it because they didn't see it, uh, it viable. They were nervous that it's not viable. Right. They're all freaked out by the female superhero films that had failed, the, right. the smaller things that had failed. And also Chris Nolan was making the the Dark Knight thing. So I think they were just trying to figure out what they were doing with DC at that time. Then they did come to me in 2008 and said, here, we're, we're interested if you would want to write and direct the uh, Wonder Woman. I was pregnant. I was like, you, nah, not now, now I, or 2007. I was yeah. like, I can't, oh my God, you know? Yeah. And so then I missed that. And um, it just took, it was just the stars aligning, you know? And then finally the moment came. And there was a moment they wanted to do a story that I wasn't the right person for. And so I said, no, it can't be me. And they hired somebody else for a little bit. And then they came, I told them what film I wanted to make. In terms in terms of Wonder Woman. I said, this is not the story I think you should tell with Wonder Woman. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to be the one to to get, you know, in a in a fight for years about it. And so they said, no, we want to do it our way. So they tried to go do it their way. And then they came back to me a year later and said, actually, do you want to do it your way? And boom, I just went and made the movie. So they were they had somebody else write a script? So they it didn't get about up. About 30, 30 scripts. There were like during that that period of time, there were so many scripts because you know, wow. I could see the writing on I, I could see the writing on the wall. There was an internal war at the at on every level about what Wonder Woman should be. And how were you in like how did you just land in the superhero world? I mean I mean because weren't you offered some other superhero movie as well? Yeah. I was attached to Thor for Thor 2 in the interim there. So I, it was just something I, I, I wanted in. I wanted to do a, a big superhero film. And I started saying that right away after Monster. Okay. People were confused by the, I didn't want to do, you know, I got every woman film 
a woman, this is a story about women who blah, blah, blah. Where I'm like, I want to make movies about women, but I don't want to make movies about being a woman. Yeah. That's so boring, (laughs) you know? Like, I want to make movies about women doing all kinds of things, you know? Right. So, so people were kind of confused, but word got out that I wanted to do a superhero film and, you know, to Marvel's credit, like on a movie that did not require a woman at all, they hired me. And so, you know, I've always been super grateful to them, even though it didn't work out. And it didn't work out because why? They wanted to do a story that I thought was not going to succeed. And I knew that it couldn't be me. It couldn't be me that had that happen. I was like, if, if they, if they hired any guy to do it, it was going to be no big deal. But I knew in my heart, I could not make a good movie out of the story they wanted to do. It wasn't the one that, uh, what's that guy, Waititi directed, was it? No, that was Taika. such a good movie. Oh my God. Taika is, I'm actually so grateful that 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 Thor found Taika because Taika is like the most genius fit for Thor yeah. of all time. Lynn, I haven't watched it. Lynn loved it. Uh, Lynn it's loved that movie. amazing. I gotta Thor watch Ragnarok it. is like one of the best Marvel movies of all time. It's so good. <laughs> that movie is pure joy and so well executed. Oh, great. I got to watch it because I, I know Lynn kept trying. I'm not a superhero movie guy. Neither was she, but she liked that It's not going to matter. Yeah. yeah you'll, you'll, you'll love Thor Ragnarok. It's, it's irrelevant. That's what I'm saying. Tyga's a great filmmaker and he just made a great film. I just watched uh, the first, your Wonder Woman, the first one the other night. I just finally really? got around to it. Yeah, I had, a feel- I had a feeling that might be true. When I thought about you, I was like, I will bet you anything. Mark has never seen Wonder Woman and he's going to have to watch it. And there are so many people like you out there. I watched both of them. Did you? That's so crazy. Yeah, I watched a new one. But but like, I know that like it was great. I And I was on, I, w- I was like absorbing the reaction to Wonder Woman. But it's not, it had nothing. Yeah. It wasn't about Wonder Woman. It's like, it takes a lot to get me to watch, you know, one yeah. of those movies. Yeah, but I was I was uh, you know home alone you know a few nights ago and I, and I just uh, well actually I watched it with my friend Kit who had never seen it and and I I liked it I, I look I'll squirt out a few tears I'm up for the ride <laughs> <laughs> but the the thing good no I and like you know like I thought I was very satisfied with the ending good. of that one. You know, because I mean, that's really like, you know, if you're going to get these pyrotechnics, I mean, you want to you want to feel the release at the end and the effects works for me. I, I was happy good. about it. The The light show was good. Good. <laughs> you know. good. I'm glad that was the only thing that the studio forced my hand on uh-huh. was that it was not supposed to be. It was supposed to be like uh, that he never turns into Aries. The whole point of the movie was that you get there to the big monster and he's just standing there looking just at you and guy. saying, I didn't do anything. Right. Yeah. And then the studio kept saying, okay, we'll let you do that. And then we'll see. And then I could feel it creeping up. And then at the last minute, they were like, you know what? We want Aries to show up. And I was like, God damn, we don't have time to do that now. Nope. You got to do it. And so it pisses me off now because sometimes I'll read the reviews and I'm like, the only thing that we got cr- cr- unanimously some shit about was that was that end pyrotechnics. And they're like, DC always does this. And the truth was, it was them. The studio did make me do that. And and it wasn't right, but that's okay. You get shit for that? Some, sometimes people just say like, the mo- they really loved the movie except for the effects in the end. And I'm like, I know. Like when he makes it, when he, when he makes the armor out of all the scraps and he becomes the yeah, guy. I ended up loving, I ended up being really at peace with what we did, but it was done too, too quickly. That's so funny. That's the part where I'm like, oh, that was cool. See, maybe I'm exactly. <laughs> I am, no, but by the way, I, 
I went, once you get the note, you embrace it. Yeah. it you're, it's happening anyway. Mm. And I ended up super proud of it. Yeah. You know, it just didn't have enough time to, to look as good as the effects needed to look. Oh, I see. I loved all the ideas of everything I did, but yeah. it was just a little rushed. Yeah. So your ending would have been that he stays David Thewlis or whatever his name is. Yeah. yeah. They, have, they would have a big fight because he's a God. He can do anything. Doesn't need he, to... he, she, she can't, she can't hurt him. He doesn't need the uh, just, armor. He didn't need the armor. Right. Yeah. Right, but they but they wanted the well they were throwing something in for the boys, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And mean and then it's the boys who had the hardest time with it. Still. Yeah. And not that much. I'm just saying, like I got picky about what the listen, we got really good reviews, but what? the tiny little comments I would say. Right. That you obsessed over for Exactly. Yeah. But uh, but like the thing I didn't I don't really know that. I fully understand because I'm just a guy and I'm not a guy who was a comic book guy anyways, but I don't think I really could wrap my brain around in an empathetic way. It was just the fact that little girls had nothing. They had yeah. nothing. And it's like, it, totally. and it's one of those things I talked to Gina Davis about this as well, where like not being, a, having ever been a little girl, even thinking about it, that this was this tremendous cultural missing piece to uh, to the idea of institutionalized sexism that they got they have zero role models that are strong yeah and weirdly the 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 woman stuff the, the funny battle that I found myself at the forefront uh -huh. of was would what the sexism of the world would allow a female powerful person to be like which is essentially very masculine. Right? right. They have to be very masculine. Right. And so I got caught in the, in this interesting forefront of trying to make a very feminine person powerful. Right. And it just made everybody so uncomfortable. But of course, that's what the women were waiting for. We're waiting for a woman that we relate with. Right. Who she's feminine. Right. She's feminine. Right. She's beautiful. She's funny. She's, you know, yeah. got vulnerabilities and she's a badass. Right. And so that was the most interesting, like, that was the most interesting thing about that, that period of time. So that was you know? like, the, but that was like, this was something you had to work out like that. You had to assess that these women that, that do get mythological status act like men. So you had to figure yeah. out how to load up wonder woman with enough depth to be all these other things. It was easy. Right. It was easy. I've been, I, it comes second nature to me. Right. I didn't have to figure anything out. Right. I've just been watching other things saying I have no relationship with that. So I was watching uh, these, these so female badass movies over and over again. And I was like, you just put a woman's body on top of a plot line of a man, right, you know? Right, right. And it's like always about rape and revenge because that's what like men, that's like the, the only thing they can get to sometimes right. to fuel action for women is that they would be right. Right. She's crazy, man. She's going to kill some yeah. dudes. Yeah. Why else would a woman kill people? She was raped, you yeah. know, like it's just this, these, these, these things. So for me, it was very easy. I've, I've known so many super badass women who were super feminine. And so, and I love Wonder Woman, by the way. And Wonder Woman was inherently that. Like Linda Carter's Wonder Woman. Yeah, like, oh, for how sure. How beautiful yeah. she was, was like intrinsic to it. For her to become harder is not Wonder Woman. But yeah, but also like on that show, like as a template, I mean, she was not menacing. No. You know, she was- but Don't worry about it. Right. She's going to save the day because exactly. she's a superhero. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah, so I was, I was, I, it, it was an interesting thing and I was very lucky. Zack Snyder was a great producer and had my back and, you know, supported me. And, you know, I was able to steer the ship over to where it needed to be. 
Well, yeah, it was I it, the whole experience of like this idea of the the one thing because I don't watch a lot of uh, superhero movies and I haven't read a lot of comic books is you have to sort of accept like you know hey how come that's like that no don't worry about it it just is okay you know like there are things that you just have to this is not real it's not real yeah. life so that's the way that is. Okay. Yeah. Fine. No, that's a, it's a funny line to walk all the time because <laughs> yeah. you are like Wonder Woman would never. I remember my husband commenting when there was this big war about whether Batman would kill people or not. Mm. And like, it was just raging back and forth. And finally my husband leaned to me and he's like, does everybody know Batman's not real? <laughs> like, <laughs> that he's a fictional character that he does every different thing in different comic books, you know? Right. But, yeah. It's a funny thing. Well, I mean, how, well, well, that's sort of, a couple of questions, I guess wh- with the first one, what was uh, the expectation? Are there like in, in doing that movie and, and working with the studio, are there either your own or studio or a mixture of, of box you have boxes you got to check as someone making? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. But, but I, nobody knows that more than I do. And nobody cares about it more than I what do. Are and they? in fact, you've got, it's, it's got to have, uh, a, a, a hero that you can fall in love with and identify with. It's got to have great action. It really need, should have, in certain ones, it should have a sense of humor. Yeah. You know, and it needs to be super entertaining. Okay. Like those are the, those are the things you have to, you have to satisfy and it should be true to the hero that you're doing because you have a huge fan base, you know? So those sorts of things, that was honestly what I was the most obsessed with coming in is I was like, okay, I felt like I was a perfectly good choice to make Wonder Woman because I loved Wonder Woman. I was like, I, I, I know I love Wonder Woman and I know I love these films. So, you know, it might as well be somebody who feels that way. But then the responsibility of like, I have to satisfy every Wonder Woman fan throughout history and Linda Carter and the studio and myself. <laughs> I like Linda Carter. Like, yeah, she is. Yeah. I called her right away. And I was like, Linda, I just want to tell you, I'm not, like reinventing, rebooting Wonder Woman. I just literally want to take a torch of something so beautiful that you started and just pass it forward, you know? What'd she she say? She she was super, you know, relieved and happy and we became fast (laughs) friends and we talk all the time and has stayed a dear friend. Now, when, after you make it, I know we're, we're, I don't want to run out of time and have to uh, rush an ending, but um, uh, before I, we, it's good that we're here and we don't and we haven't talked much about the new one because I don't want to spoil anything because I know that that Warner Brothers will have me killed if I even share any of this. <laughs> um, but like after the Wonder Woman comes out and the reaction, what did you find the the most moving about it? Was it the little girls? I mean, like it was. You know what? It was. It was. It was the people who saw of all kinds who 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 started going and seeing it over and over again and dressing up as a character, but it was all kinds of people. Cause it was also like the, the, the way women were reacting to it blew my mind. Mm. Cause if even I was making the movie, I'm not thinking about being a woman and I'm not thinking about her being a woman yeah. that much. I know, I know it. And I sort of remember thinking like, of course I'm going to make, I'm going to be the first woman to whatever, you know, mm. but I wasn't thinking about the audience being so hungry for that every day when I'm making it, I'm just not thinking about it. So that part was like, whoa, the thirst for it. And then the people like men in wheelchairs and, and, and you know, trans cosplay people, right. who, like finding themselves in Wonder Woman, it being a different kind of hero that made them feel 
that they could relate when they hadn't been able to feel that before, you know, and then no man's land, you know, the guy in the wheelchair told me the story about no man's land, reminding him of like every time he has to go to the hospital and they have to take all his clothing off and pull him up and stand him on his feet. Uh I was so, you know, and he's like, and that's my no man's land. I'm naked and alone and everybody's, you know, and it's like, woof, just, you know, it goes back to Superman. It's like, that I get to do that for other people. What Superman did for me. And the mythology works. Like that, that, yeah. that it's like the mythic story has personal applications. That, I mean, that's sort of fascinating. That's what I've always believed in. And even I am proud of the movie that I made, but I also felt like it's not just me. That kind of story. People were so thirsty for the story of that kind of true North, very simple hero story. We don't tell it very often right, now. Right. I guess that's true. Yeah. They're always a little dark. There's always a little dirt there. Some, complicated yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and niche. Same thing that I was facing at art school. It just infected the film industry too. It's always a joke on a joke and a hat on a hat. And I'm, you know, it's like, it, it's not just like, I mean, yeah, I think in the Homeric, the Homeric hero has a Achilles heel, but not necessarily some dark wound, but uh, yeah. yeah. But like with the new one, I mean, how is, what's, how is it affecting you that, that a great many people will not be able to see it on a big screen? I I have the weirdest mix of feelings because I never would have thought I could be okay with this. Never. I'm a pure theatrical experience person. Well, I mean, we're in difficult times here. As the year went on and suddenly when this idea came up of doing it this way at Christmas, it felt so right. I was like, now is the moment I myself am craving seeing the film. Like I'm craving what that film, what the film has is in it. And I've seen it so many times. I can't stand it. Yeah, there is some, watching it, it is, again. It's, it's a little gnarly, but I'm thirsty for, for positivity and, and, and bigness and escape and all of those things. So to my shock, I'm like devastated that there are going to be people who can't see it at all because they can't figure out how to stream it and they can't get to a theater. But I feel incredible about the, the getting to share something that we love and worked on with people in on the heels of, and in the midst of such a super dark time. Yeah. And also there, there, there is a certain amount of relevance that, I mean, there, you know, you, this one more than the other one, which is a period piece, this is a period piece, but it does speak to some of what we're going through or what possibly could. Uh, Hugely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was what it was meant to do. That was what it was. That was why I picked the eighties. I was like, I don't want to talk about now in literal terms, but that was the height of what got us to where we are now. You did the eighties. It looked great. It looked great. The eighties. I just did a show in the eighties. It was, it's kind of like, it's nice to see it. You you paid a lot of attention. You just even, I don't know where the hell you found all those outfits. You must have had to make some of them. Oh my God. Very (laughs) few did we have to make. It was, let me tell you, it was not easy. That mall though was so incredible to stand in the mall. It was like going back in time. It was in Virginia. So it was just one of those intact malls from the period that you had to. But it was empty and shut down. Oh. And so we just rebuilt every store in that mall. No kidding. Period. And it was very expensive and laborious. But boy, was it a trip once it happened. And you're standing there looking. You look great. Thank you. And I'd never seen that guy, Pedro Pasal. I don't know that guy. So he's like totally new to oh, me. Yeah. And what a what a great uh, uh, a character he put together there thank you yeah i'm so happy to hear you say that because i love his performance oh, it's like and it's wild funny. man they, he's super serious in everything else you've ever seen and like i think this is so dull that's a pocket that not a lot of people can but hit. also yeah but also so so broken 
But so yeah. like, you know, like it all is coming from this insane, you know, trauma and, and injury or whatever. And you can feel yeah. it right away. But it's like, it, uh, you know, he takes it to the to the hilt, you know? Yeah. Um, well, well, I like I, I did. Uh, I don't I guess I can't really tip anything. But I was wondering about the plane. And uh, I'm glad we got closure on that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very, it's very, it was funny. I realized the plot line to the second film while I was making the first one. Uh And, and it's going to be interesting to finally see people satisfied by the fact that though there's a rhyme and a reason behind things. So just, right. Just bear with me. And you wrote the film. Right. And you, and you wrote (laughs) this one. So this is all you. Yeah. 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 With two partners. Yeah. With, with Jeff Johns and Dave Callahan. And where did you, did you have to honor the comic books? Did you honor the comic books? I don't know the comic books. You do. And you don't, you, this is you, you, you are writing your own comic book when you do these movies. And so you're doing your own thing. But then of course you're, you're honoring the history of Barbara Minerva and the history of Max Lord and like right. all, you know, okay. you're getting very into the details of these things. Right. So, you know, the character. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it was great talking to you. So great to talk to you too. Nice meeting you finally. Yeah, you too. You too. So fun. This was a great conversation. It was. And uh, I, you know, I hope the movie kills. Thank you. Take it easy. <laughs> I appreciate it. You too. Thanks, Mark. That was a very cheap, I enjoy talking to her. She's focused. The movie is Wonder Woman 1984, streaming now on HBO Max and playing in theaters. Her movie Monster is a masterpiece. And uh, it's lovely uh, to talk to her. I'm going to play some mud here on my new Gibson SG Captain model. Humbuckers. Here we go. Everywhere. <laughs>